Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 21st, 2020, and this is episode 2,585 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday. Time for a Just Jack show where we take a single subject and kind of dig into it. Today we're going to talk about something that I haven't really talked about in the way we're going to talk about it in quite a while. And the first time I talked about it, well, to say it was quite a while ago would be an understatement. On July 22nd, 2008, yeah, 2008, I did episode 20 of the Survival Podcast. And I just listened to part of it, and the audio was awful in the first about 30 to 40 episodes. It was terrible, but people dealt with it because it was unique content. And uh, there really wasn't anything like TSP when I started it in 2008. It was really an, an unutilized space. People weren't talking about prepping on podcasts. They weren't talking about homesteading. They weren't talking about gardening. They weren't talking about... Um, Entrepreneurship in the way that we do, they definitely weren't talking about lifestyle design. Uh, the four-hour work week was a brand new book, and, and, and the concept of lifestyle design really was, was not that well um, uh, propagated, I guess, across the, uh, the interwebs. And um, it's, it's funny listening to that show because I'm pretty happy about the fact that we had just hit 200 listeners. 200 listeners. Um, and, and, like, you know, one of those was me. So it was really, like... 199 listeners, <laughs> and uh, it was interesting, and I was thinking, man, we should talk about that. So what is the exact subject? The concept of home becoming a homestead, moving from a home to a homestead, moving from a house to a homestead, not necessarily picking up and leaving, but shifting things where you're at, if at all possible, so that your home actually is a homestead. To move the home from one of our greatest consumers of resources to one of our producers of resources. To actually turn the home back into what it used to be, an asset, where in today's words uh, of uh, Robert Kiyosaki, the, uh, the home is the number one liability most people own. Real estate should be an incredible asset for many people. It really is a liability. Because give them one month without a job and they, they're foreclosed on, thrown out of their house, and they've destroyed their credit, and they probably have approached you know, bankruptcy at that point. And a big part of that is not following the concept and the, the ethos that everybody should sort of at least in some ways be a homesteader. That doesn't mean everybody should have chickens and rabbits. But there's certain concepts that come with homesteading that I think everybody, should, especially every prepper, should be involved with. Well, this concept, when I first introduced it, struck something in people. It, it became a, a huge topic of discussion in the, the soon-to-be forum of the time, um, etc. It was so widely discussed that uh, some good friends of the community, I haven't heard from them in a while, but they were definitely good friends of the community. It was on their podcast. They were on mine. Uh, Johnny Max and the Queen uh, did a podcast called The Self-Sufficient Homestead. And the tagline was, From Home to Homestead. They took it, I mean, they lifted it right from me. They were completely honest about it. I had no problems with it, but 
it inspired an entire podcast into and of itself. So I thought maybe we should talk about that again. Sometimes I feel like we need to kind of go back to the roots and the fundamentals that built the Survival Podcast and talk about them. That's what we're going to do today. Before we do, though, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ridge Wallet. I love Ridge Wallet. I am so much less likely to leave my wallet in the car and have to go back out to get it while people are mad at me for holding up a line now that I carry the Ridge Wallet because it goes in my front pocket and it doesn't take up much space. Unlike the billfold, it used to be a lump on my ass that I always took out of my pocket when I was driving and put in a little cubby hole in my truck and then forgot it there. It happened a lot. Um, that's one big thing about the Ridge Wallet. The other thing is just cool. It just works better. It's a better wallet. And it protects us from identity theft by shielding the RFID cards and all of your IDs and everything today that are so easy for people to steal. You want to check these guys out. I have been carrying the Ridge Wallet for over two years now. I don't think I'm ever going back to a billfold. I suggest you give it a try. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Remember, they do do a discount for members of the MSB. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, the magazine I've been reading since 1994. 1994, I became a customer of Backwoods Home. First found it in 1993. Uh, when I first got out of the Army, I was pretty dead broke, and I would walk up to the mall that was near the place I was staying at, and I would uh, read books and magazines in the, the Barnes & Noble there. You know, and buy a coffee while I was there so I didn't feel like a complete bum by using them as a library. Uh, of course, they built their whole brand on kind of being library-like and their big plush chairs and everything. And I found this magazine called Backwoods Home. And I had moved to Texas, and I had been in the Army for a few years, and I was, I was missing what I grew up with. And I found that connection back to it in Backwoods Home. It is the journal of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and liberty with a libertarian flair. Check them out today at Backwoods Home. Dot com. With that, let's get into the subject today. Um, I want to start out with a quote of the day that fits right in with what we're going to be talking about today because this is, as much as this is about the mechanics of homesteading and the things that you do, it's a lot about how you think. And philosophy drives action. Okay, Thought drives action, but philosophy drives thought, I guess, maybe is a way to look at it. One of my favorite people of all time is Henry David Thoreau. And he said one time, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. You know, if it's money, you can actually quantify, like, how long and how hard did I work and how much time doing what I didn't want to do did I give up to make that $500. And then the cost of the thing you bought isn't $500, it's that time. I've often said of debt, the debt is not measured in dollars but years. How long does it take from you compared to what it gives you? really kind of the same thing. Well, with what we're talking about today with homesteading, what is the true cost of your home? If you've bought more home than you can afford and it produces nothing and all you continue to do is throw money into it so you have a place to live. How 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 what is the cost of your home? And I know some people who for instance on like a 3 or 4 bedroom house on like a half acre are paying $12,000 a year or more in property taxes, but they're really proud of the better schools their kids go to. I don't know, but I think twelve grand a year buys a pretty good private education. It really does. I, I, I think that we need to look a little bit harder at all of our decisions when it comes to money, but mainly because the money comes from an effort that we extend somewhere else to acquire it. And what did it really cost us? And there's a reason that people that are billionaires don't see a lot of cost in something like, oh, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollar yacht. 
because they don't have a lot of their life invested in that $100,000. The cost to them might be a week to buy that yacht. For you, it might be two years. If you buy it on credit, maybe it's 10 or more. And that's how we have to look at things if we're going to do a better job of managing our lives. Because homesteading is really more about managing your home and your lifestyle through your home than it is about, again, like keeping chickens or rabbits or something like that. Because I know a lot of people that I would consider homesteaders that have no livestock, unless maybe you consider a pet dog livestock. So what I want to start out with is how we have basically turned homes from an asset to a liability in our modern society. And the number one way we have done that is buying more home than we can afford. That's, the, that's not the only way. But it's the number one thing that we've done. And we've done that by misappropriating our own personal values. We have, we have made houses into status symbols instead of places to raise families. We, we have an ego about how our house looks. And, and don't get me wrong, I want my house to be nice. I've done a lot of work to improve my home since we've moved into it. Um, I always think about the exit strategy. So when I want to, if I want to sell a house, I do a lot of things to make a house look good and sell well versus what I paid for it. But, you know, if somebody is like, well, oh, you live over there, I don't really care. There are people that do, a lot of people that do. We, we have gotten to a position where instead of saying, boy, what I really want from a house is a really great, safe, warm place to raise my kids or to live with my, my, my significant other or even to live by myself. And it's become, I want a trendy area. And we've, we've started making decisions about how much house to buy based on how much credit we can get. So, for instance, when I bought this house and I, I bought a house and it, to, to talk about like, well, what kind of house can you buy following this rule? I have three acres. I have a 2,500 square foot home. Uh, it has five bedrooms. It has three bathrooms. It has an 1800 foot, 1800 square foot shop building, three bay, metal shop insulated building, concrete floor. It has a second shop over 800 square feet. And has a lot of other infrastructure on it, but most of it I put on. But it does have a 12 by 16 shed I use as a duck and chicken coop that was here when I moved in. It's fenced and cross fenced. And I don't live out in the middle of nowhere. I live just outside of Fort Worth. If their traffic's not bad, um, if I go like you know during the time of day when traffic's not bad, I can be in downtown Fort Worth in about 15 minutes. You want to guess what I paid for it? If you've never heard this before, two hundred and five thousand dollars. Two hundred and five thousand dollars. And I bought it about six years ago. So it's not like I bought it back in like '84 or something like that. And was it easy to find? No. Did it take a lot of work? Yeah. Was it worth it? Absolutely. I didn't buy it in foreclosure. I didn't buy it at an auction. I bought it with a standard mortgage from a family selling it who needed to sell it. Because if you look hard enough, you can find deals. Now, I realize that if you live in California or, you know, especially near like San Francisco or something like that, that is completely different. But I'm also saying that if you want freedom, you might look at moving. Because I find most of the places that are extremely expensive to live have a pretty poor quotient on liberty. So, 
That's just a thought there. Anyway, we've, we've done this. We've, we've made what should be a huge asset into a liability, and we've done it with easy credit, government-backed mortgages, uh, subprime lending, but just the overall mentality that your house is a statement about you, that we have self-worth attached to our zip code. And I, I think that's just a tragedy. Um, next, I want to talk a little bit about the first homesteaders who came to America and why they came here in the first place. People always talk about how people came to this country for freedom and liberty. And there's, there's definitely some reality to that. But the number one thing that drove people to come to this place You know, and I'm talking about prior to the American Revolution. The very first people that came and began to move through the wilderness and settle lands here. Once the beachheads of the, of the initial cities and colonies got set up, and the people that went just a little further than everybody else was and, and said, I'm going to stake my claim here. What brought them here was the ability to own land. At the time that this kind of thing was going on, in much of the world, if you were not a noble, you could not own land. Even if you had money, you could not own land. Land was reserved in many cases to the nobility, and the ability to come up with enough money to even purchase land was difficult if you weren't noble in the first place. But you could come to America and do whatever it took in one of the early cities and work like a dog, but you could do it. And then, in a short time, you could have a small piece of dirt that was your own. And that continued well into the 1800s and, and early 1900s even. And yes, there were some bad things that happened by, back then as far as displacement of indigenous peoples and all. We're not talking about that today. Because most of the people that came didn't really come to do that. And most of them didn't have a lot to do with it happening. A, a lot of that happened through... Diseases spreading that I don't even think we really understood we were spreading, at least initially. I'm just talking about the people that said, I want something more. I want a piece of my own land where I can work and I can have the results. I don't get a guarantee. I don't get a promise. But I get a chance. And, man, I got to tell you, There's a lot that's been made about how the World War II generation is the greatest generation, surviving the Great Depression, fighting the Second World War, etc. I kind of feel in some ways like some of the multiples of the homesteaders that, that settled this land truly in many ways were the greatest generations because what they fought was Mother Nature. There was no supply lines keeping them fed. There was no air support. You know, I mean, I, I, I can't even get my head around what our grandparents did in World War II. The bravery that it took to overcome that fear and, and fight that war. But when I look at, like, what did the most for this country here, homesteading did. And that's what it was. It was that you had a chance that you could go. And, you know, this is before we had income tax and all that shit, property tax and whatever. When you had your piece of land, it was your piece of land. And whatever you made, you kept. And, and that was what brought people here. Well, we need to kind of reconnect with that, that spirit, that mindset. Think about the fact what these people were willing to give up to own a little piece of land. 
And back then, you know, a little piece of land might have been 30 acres, 40 acres. But think about the fact that even today, in many places of the world, the concept that you can just easily find a house that a person with a decent job can afford with a half acre of land is, is like just not, it's not possible in a lot of places in the world still today. And in a lot of places in the world, even when you do that, you're not allowed to do anything with it. That's becoming more the case here, but there's still so many opportunities. It is so easy for us. Because I want you to think about a homesteader in the 1800s for chainsaws and bulldozers and stuff like that, finding a place they wanted to settle and just clearing a half an acre. Just clearing a half an acre. If you've ever used a chainsaw to clear a tenth of an acre... If you've ever used a chainsaw to cut a logging road in, your appreciation for that has to be high. When you think about doing it with an axe and, and a, a, a you know a two-handed buck saw, and then building a house from nothing. That's what it was. Build a shack, then turn the shack into a house, and then turn that piece of dirt and that shack house into a livelihood and a multi-generational homestead. That's what those people did. We can do it today with a mortgage. We, I mean, you really have to appreciate that. The key shift, though, is in moving your home from consumer to a producer. You have to start looking at your home and saying, what can this place provide for me beyond four walls and a roof? How can it help to feed me or clothe me? You know, how can it become something that mentors my children, teaches my children? Maybe, maybe it's homeschooling, but maybe it's just projects. That's part of homesteading. So you grow young adults who can then take care of themselves. People that see their, ha their houses just as a place to live, they're the ones that are producing all these young people that can't do anything. You, you find me kids that grew up in a, in a family that practiced you know, modern homesteading. And I guarantee you those kids know how to do things. They know which end of a wrench to use to turn a bolt. They know how pliers works. They know what they know what a ratchet is. And if you think I'm being a little bit harsh, I hired a kid, he was 19, I had to teach him what a ratchet was. Not how to use it first. First I had to teach him what a ratchet was. He didn't know what a ratchet was, 19 years old. I promise you, if you grew up on a homestead, you know what a ratchet is. So that's that shift. We got to be producing and not necessarily just food, but we have to be producing a lifestyle with our homes. Otherwise, you might as well just, you know, live in a hotel room. I mean, seriously, in the end, it'll probably cost less for a lot of people. Um, you have to start out with this process buying right. And that's kind of where I was going toward the beginning there with. You need to spend less money than the bank says you can have. I, like I said, I, I paid two hundred five for this house, and you know when I when I look at it and against my advice, my son and his wife bought a thirteen hundred square foot three bedroom house in the middle of a suburb for one hundred seventy. I mean, it gives you a perspective of what can be done when you're willing to work for it and put some effort into it and make a couple compromises. But when we look at the concept of less than the bank says you can have, I mean significantly less. 
When I filled out paperwork for a mortgage, they were like, oh, immediately pre-approve you for four hundred fifty grand. I'm not buying a four hundred fifty thousand dollar house on a mortgage. It's not happening. I bought about half with the banks that I can afford. And you know what that makes me? Happy. It makes me content. It makes me able to live my life here and do the things I want to do to actually invest in systems that provide for me instead of having to throw all my money just to keep the house from being taken away from me. So you got to start there. But that said, of all debt, debt on real estate is the least bad debt there is. And in many instances, I think it makes sense to have a mortgage on a home. It used to be that that might provide you with some level of a tax deduction because of the interest, but for most people now under the new tax law, that's not the case. That By doubling the standard deductions, they've made it where, for most people, it doesn't make sense to itemize that way anymore. That's, but that was never why I suggested that, you know, for a lot of people, it makes sense to have a mortgage on a home. When you can get interest rates in the three and four percentile, and if you're doing anything to effectively manage your money well, you should be able to make about at least seven and a half, eight percent, even being highly conservative and even getting out of the way of major stock market corrections and things, which is fairly easy to do if you don't listen to experts and you listen to common sense then it's much better for me to have $200,000 working for me at 8% and servicing a debt at, at 3.5% than it is to not have the $200,000. So we do have a mortgage on our home. That said, it's, a, it's nowhere near the $200,000 mark. But like, we don't worry about paying that bill at all. I'd prefer not to, but it's, it's not a concern. And if you're going to actually have a homestead, you kind of need to get yourself into a position where whether it's paid in full so you don't have a mortgage or you you know, you know, can pay it down for a certain number of years and finance it at a much lower rate or whatever you need to do, you need to be comfortable with the number that is the payment on a home. And until you do that, you'll have a very hard time getting this shift done. So some of it is just good financial management. Uh, but I don't hate mortgages. I hate credit card debt. I hate consumer double debt. I think if you take a vacation on a credit card and then pay it off over three years, that's stupid with your money. It'll be the most expensive vacation you could have ever taken. And it will cost you in what you've given up in your life. You might get that two weeks, but what you'll have to give back way exceeds the two weeks. So debt is okay, but it needs to be manageable extremely manageable. And then I want to kind of go into why I think all preppers should at least partially be homesteaders. Well, that really comes down to one very simple term that we, we use all the time in the world of prepping, bugging in. A homestead is designed to provide for you. A homestead is designed to provide not just things and stuff, but to store surplus production. It is designed that if something goes wrong, you can take corrective action. If you're going to bug in, you want to be comfortable and you want to be well supplied. It's almost impossible to do that just by stocking a pantry. That's a piece of it. Stocking pantries can be expensive when we produce and learn how to produce food and learn how to present, you know, turn it into storable items. We can stock that pantry for less. But we also, if we have a production methodology going on, 
once we've used up the pantry, as we're using out of the pantry, we're replenishing. When we homestead, we develop systems around our home, and we end up with a family that understands those systems. So if you end up having to stay put, you can actually run your home. You actually know how things work when you homestead. Where most people don't even know how the most basic components of their home work. They might understand that if they turn their thermostat up or down, the heat or the air conditioner comes on, but they have no idea how that system works. Some people are lucky if they understand the concept of how cable TV even gets into their television set. So when we build systems from the ground up, we understand those systems intimately and we're able to actually function if those systems fail because we know how to fix them. Then there's just a general mentality. It's it's hard for me to conceive of someone that really sees themselves as a prepper that doesn't take any homesteading steps. But more, it's very hard for me to see anybody who takes true significant steps toward homesteading, whether it be even you know using the back patio of an apartment. If you take steps toward homesteading, it's very hard for me to understand how that person doesn't become a prepper, if that makes sense. Like, you might be a prepper without really getting into homesteading. You might just store a bunch of shit and have a plan. But if you get into homesteading, you're going to be a prepper. Because that's just what it leads to. Because the entire concept goes back again to people who cleared an acre and eventually 40 and built a life where they had to take care of themselves. So let's talk about seven ways that you could turn your home into a producer. First, the obvious one, growing food. And I, I don't care how little it starts, and I don't even care how big it gets. I just care that something gets done. I don't care if it's you find a really sunny window, and you paint some mason jars, and you grow lettuce and herbs in mason jars in a sunny window, or you go out on your back patio of your apartment, and you put in a little you know container garden with some herbs and maybe uh, you know some, some climbers and stuff like that. Long ago, I remember watching a video with Bill Mollison, and he went out onto a patio, and it was a small patio. It was maybe six foot by 10 foot, so 60 square feet. And the amount of productivity he put on, I, I can't remember what the name of that movie was. If it comes to me today, I'll find it and drag it into the show notes. But it was amazing. They put, he put a little fish tank in it and he put some frogs in the tank to help control pests and he put up a trellis and he put up some beans on the trellis and put in some containers. And it was amazing what you could do if you just thought about what is all the space that I have out here? It's not just 60 square feet. Look, I've got a wall here. I've got a wall there. I've got a railing here. Now, oh, gee, all of a sudden I have, you know, 100 or 150 square feet of space that things can grow on. And once you start growing your own food, it changes so many things about your mindset. And, I mean, some of the stuff that's the easiest to grow is some of the most expensive stuff. If you want to get an idea of, like, how expensive some things really are, Go to a grocery store, go to the spice aisle, and, and, and get some of the, the herbs that you can grow, like rosemary and thyme and oregano and stuff like that. It's really easy to grow and so much better fresh. Then figure out what the price per pound is. It's shocking. Uh, lettuces. One of the most expensive forms of produce there is. That's why so many people farm it, because it's profitable. 
That's why all your spin farmers, all your people that sell to restaurants, the number one thing they grow is, is salad greens. You know, a couple flower pots growing a salad green mix, and you can grow a tremendous amount of your own salad. You know, if that saves you 10 bucks a week to do that, just 10 bucks a week. You're eating the best quality, some hydroponic lettuce, some, some soil-grown lettuce, some herbs, 10 bucks a week worth. Okay, that's $40 a month. That Your home is now providing to you. And then if we're back to our quote of the day, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. If a person makes $20 an hour, that's two hours of their life back. That's two hours of your life back by growing food. Now, we could take this to a much higher level. I mean, the hydroponic farm I'm building is going to freaking produce several hundred dollars worth of food a week, I think. I mean, we'll see, but I think that's kind of the numbers we're looking at. And that's not even going outside. Yes, that has an electric bill. I'm factoring the cost of everything in. Six months payback, and you're still going to profit over $150 a week, uh, uh, um, a month. Right? I mean, that's that's my minimum, and I think I can do better than that. I think that what I'm going to do with that system alone, with some microgreens, I'll be able to grow eight different microgreens in, a, in, in 10 by 10 trays, Even a 10 by 10 tray is a lot of microgreens for a family. I think you could put together a food box a week for a couple customers and sell it for 20 bucks each, $40 in cash. So now instead of just $40 worth of herbs a month, you got $40 a month in cash. I mean, even staying very small scale urban, I know a guy, he's, uh, he's been on the show, his name's Brad Davies. It was producing 20,000 quail eggs in a similar footprint that I just described in his one, one car garage. Plus, you know, a couple thousand quail for meat a, a year. The only cost was really food and you, their food. And it was really a much bigger payback than food in quail are. So quail are an, an option for growing food. And those are, I just gave you two that you don't even have to dig a hole in the backyard to do. I think if you're doing quail, you're going to end up with a bunch of compostables, and that's going to lead to some at least level of container gardening out back or something. But, hey, great. So that's one thing you can do. The next one, and we've touched on this already, even just with the growing food, but there's other ways to do this, to generate income. And there's a lot of ways to generate income from your home. I look at it this way. When we moved to, moved to Arkansas, because I couldn't have Internet at our home there, I had to rent an office. Renting that office space cost me about $800 a month. I don't have an office anymore. Well, I do. It's this room that I sit in with my fish tanks and all my stuff that I enjoy, and I talk to you guys every day. I generate all my income from my home, so much so that I, I it's hard to get me to leave anymore. So I'm an extreme example on, a, on, on the technological side. I use technology to generate most of my income. But I do it all from right here. So now my home is my office. And because I believe in good accounting practices and I believe in finding the 90, you know, using the 90% of the tax code that's how you get out of the 10% and I have a good CPA, all of this creates a deduction from my income. So I pay less in taxes. I've gone from having an $800 a month expense to a net gain 
and basically a phantom tax write-off that's completely legal and legit because they're the ones that wrote the law. I'm just following it. That's one way to generate income. Growing food is a way to generate income. You know, but what what hobbies can you set up to get really good at in your home and even maybe go into gray markets with? So a gray market to me is something that's not illegal, but technically you're not supposed to do it, but you figure out a way to do it so that you can do it and nobody can say nothing about it. So if you set up a little place out in one of your shops or your garages to reload ammunition and you let all your buddies know that you reload ammunition, it's very conceivable that they might want you to reload ammunition for them. Now, technically, it's against the law because you're manufacturing ammunition, so you should have a you know a, a FFL or whatever, but it's not illegal for me to load ammo for you and you pay for the components and I'm just loading ammo for you. Maybe you pay more for those components than they really cost would be an example. But I can tell you that a lot of guys could probably put a couple hundred bucks in their pocket taking that hobby of reloading and doing it for their buddies. A couple hundred bucks a month. Or a hundred. Who cares if it's a hundred dollars a month? Twenty-five bucks a week. How many people do you need to be doing that for that are, you know, that shoot a lot before all of a sudden it is a significant portion of income? Especially since it's fence post income. For those of you that don't know what I mean when I say fence post income, we have a saying in Texas and they have in other places. It's between you, me, and the fence post. Do you, do you think a guy that's reloading, you know, a few boxes of 44 Magnum for a friend a month that makes 20 bucks off of it's going to tell the government, hey, I need to pay you taxes on his 20 bucks. So that 20 bucks is like 30 bucks in real money because you're not paying tax on it. That's the kind of thing that you can do. And it's like, it's, there's, there's dozens of ways to do that. If you have a stay-at-home mom that's a really good home educator, she might find that she can make a few bucks just by being a tutor. And that's a good way to spread homeschooling because when the parent that's paying for tutoring realizes what's going on, maybe that spreads the idea that homeschooling is a good idea. There's so many ways to make money. I mean, I believe if you're, you're doing Uber or Rover or anything like that, your base of operations is your house. How do you generate income with your home? And I don't even care what the answer is. I don't even care if you have an answer. I just care that you start asking yourself that question because I know we've talked a lot about mental programming with my laws of life lately. If you ask a question of your brain, your brain will give you answers in time. The next thing is you need to set your home up to provide recreation. You know, and that's that's when I put recreation, I'm talking about, you know, everything from eating, you know, versus going out, movie nights at home versus in a theater. If you start looking at what people spend on recreation of non-essentials, it's the single largest expense most people have. Not all people, but most people, I would say. That non-essential spending, the largest amount, that, which is kind of cheating, isn't it, to say it that way? But I, I mean, really, like, if you take away the grocery bill, the rent, the electricity, and health insurance, what people end up spending most of their money on is some form of recreation. And I'm talking about, like, service-level recreation. So if you go buy something that gives you a lot of, joy, but you keep it at home, it kind of falls under what I'm saying to do, not what I'm saying not to do. I'm talking about people that pay a whole bunch of money to go watch uh, a sporting event. You want to do that once in a while? Fine. I get it. 
But do you need do you need to be doing it all the time? And I know a lot of you are like, I've never been to a damn so I don't care about that. Jack, I don't even know why you watch football on TV. Okay, I understand that, but there's something. Out to eat. One of the biggest expenses people have is how much I, I it amazes me. To, to, I'll talk to people. I don't really talk to people like this anymore because I stay home. But when I used to, you know, go to the office and all, I talk to people. And they, they don't tell me how broke they are. You know, I only make about forty thousand a year. I don't have a lot of money, and I notice that they go out to eat for lunch every day. And they ate garbage. And they would be. You say, well, how do you, you know, you go out to eat every day? Well, yeah, but you know. Um, Yeah, I, I go more off the dollar menu or whatever, and I, and I spend about five bucks a day on lunch. Okay, that's $35 a week. Plus, I notice you come in the, the door every morning with a $3 to $4 coffee. And after lunch, you, when you show back up, you've swung by Starbucks or whatever again, you have another $3 to $4 coffee. So we're talking at least $10 a day in coffee and lunch. So we're talking $50 a week, $200 a month, and you're telling me you don't have any money. Or if you learn to be a great cook, just the leftovers you would bring to the office to eat would, would just be so much better than what you're eating now, and it would cost you almost nothing because I know you're probably eating at home or you're doing this for dinner too. So either way, you could be ahead or way ahead by making your home the kind of place that you want to eat, in, including at an elevated level. If I want to make surf and turf for my wife and I, it's going to cost money. I'm going to go buy like four little lobster tails so we get two a piece, and a really, you know, maybe a really nice fillet of beef. So I might have thirty-five, forty bucks into that. That's an expensive meal, even for us. It's an expensive meal. But what does that meal cost me if I go out to a restaurant and get one lobster tail instead of two and a smaller fillet of beef? Plus, you know, I'm going to be eating mine. With microgreens that I grew, with arugula from the garden, with maybe, hey, you know, next morning, whatever's left over, we'll fry that up with some duck eggs. I'm eating food that would literally cost me five to ten times more if I was eating it in a restaurant. And I'm spending money similar most of the time, because I don't do surf and turf every night. I'm spending money similar to what people pay to go to McDonald's. So that's about one form of recreation. What do you enjoy doing? How do you get more of that at home? We've talked a lot about things like this and skill set development that goes along with it. Airsoft. Shooting's expensive. Airsoft's cheap. You can, you can shoot a lot of airsoft pellets with freaking one $5 can of propane. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying, like, what is it? What makes your... See, I, I, it amazes me how... Frequently, people want to leave their home. They don't want to be home. Single biggest expense, you don't want to be there. You spend an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening in a mobile metal coffin called a car going to and from a place you probably don't want to be to be with people you don't want to be with, to do work you don't want to do, to be paid less than you're worth, to do it again the next day, And most of it is to provide the place you live for you and your family. And the first thing you want to do when you have free time is leave. And I know that I, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. Some of you guys have been with me a long time, and that's not you. But do you remember when it was? Has it ever been? And do you know people like this? Until you turn your home into a place you don't want to leave, it's not a homestead.
And then by adding preparedness to this, you can use economy of scale with food storage. One of the reasons our meals cost less is because we grow a lot of our own food and we preserve that food. So by having a storage plan, we're able to buy food for less and we're able to not waste food that we produce. And we're also able to do smart purchases. Right? I'll go to Costco and I'll buy a big thing because I know what to do to make sure it doesn't all get wasted. And then we you know, try to be smart about that as well and not make impulse buys that are big on things that we won't completely use. We were at Costco yesterday and had these big, beautiful thing of organic mushrooms. Lot, you know, fresh ones. And I was like, man, we'll never eat them all. And it's like, you can freeze mushrooms, you can dry mushrooms, but if I'm going to buy frozen or dried mushrooms, they'll cost me even less. So why would I spend the money to dry the mushroom when I could buy the dried mushrooms for less that are just as good? And somebody else put the energy into doing the drying process. Now, if I find a place with a whole bunch of mushrooms that I can forage, and we'll talk about that in a second, but now I'm going to go ahead and use that economy of scale and food storage to go ahead and convert those to storables, right? Which is kind of my next thing. That's, that's a skill set that you need to make part of your household, the ability to take food that's not storable and make it storable. Because that has a lot to do with your garden, But I'm, I'm going to tell you, there are some real opportunities just at farmer's markets, especially toward the end of the season. I remember one farmer's market I used to go to, you could almost get tomatoes for free toward the end of the season. I mean, especially ones with little blemishes and stuff like that. You know, people have like a half bushel basket. Five bucks. Take those home. Those you do, you do make that buy, and you do take them home and throw them in the Excalibur or in your solar dehydrator that you built because it was fun to build in your shop so you had recreation at your home from scrap pieces so you have no money in it. Right? You do buy, make that buy because you can't buy that much of high-quality, locally-grown, beyond-organic tomatoes dried for five bucks in the minimal amount of energy input you have. So we really want, that is a skill that we have lost. And this is a skill that, like, I didn't know it was a skill. Like, even when I wasn't doing it, because I had, you know, I'd come here to Texas. I was just trying to make my way up as a young single guy at the time. And I was just trying to get through every day. And I kind of let all this stuff fall to the side. It never occurred to me that none of my contemporaries knew how to preserve food. It's like, if Of course they know how. Like, I grew up in a, in, a, in a home with, you know, Ukrainian grandparents. There were old countries as, as you can get. Canning and dehydrating and pickling and fermenting, all of that stuff, we just did it. So when, when I started getting into um, this show, and by then I'd way come back to it on my own. I mean, I'd been doing it for years on my own. I just didn't talk about it in a podcast And I started, you know, I would mention something like, you know, making, making, um, why sauerkraut? And I get emails from people saying, well, how do you do that? It's like, you, you, you mean people don't know how to make sauerkraut? You, you put salt on cabbage, you put it in a jar and weigh it down so it stays under the brine and then, like, it just turns into sour. Like, the concept to me that somebody didn't know how to do that. Or I'd mention, like, 
you know, shotguns, and I would talk about chokes, and I'd get an email and say, what's the difference between a modified and improved cylinder choke that you were talking about? What is that? What does that mean? I was like, how, 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 how do you not know that? There were so many things like that, and this is what I want to give back to America. See, I didn't know that it was lost. I didn't know people didn't understand this. I, and I would talk to neighbors and be like, yeah, we did this. Like, how do you do that? You, you don't know how to dry a tomato? You dry it. Like, when you learn to do these things, they become so entrenched in you, it actually becomes foreign that people wouldn't do them. Next is energy efficiency and production. You know, it's great to think about living off-grid, but the biggest gains for most people in energy is efficiency. Good insulation, sealing up the cracks around doors and windows. I mean, that's the, that, the, replace lights with LEDs. That's something that's not anywhere near as big of an issue anymore because most people now, like when you buy a light, you buy an LED light. Why wouldn't you? But if you still have incandescent lights, and there are some places where incandescents make a lot of sense. And in those instances, use those. But in most places, you know, LEDs are the most energy efficient lights we've ever had. So improve energy efficiency, and then anything you can do toward production is beneficial. The number one way, and this is still the case, I don't think it's going to be much longer, because solar pricing just keeps getting driven down. But the number one ROI for most people is going to be a solar hot water system if you want to go there. Because that cuts the bill. See, everybody wants to make Homestead always about off-grid. Great if you can do it. Great if it makes sense. But Let's go back to our quote of the day. The price of anything is the amount of your life you exchange for it. So if you can cut your electric bill by, let's say, 50 bucks a month with a hot water system, maybe even something you build yourself and plumb in, well, if you make $25 an hour, that's two hours of your life a month back. And how many... Ways can we take back an hour here, 15 minutes there, two hours there, every month? Can we take a week of our life back? A work week, anyway? 40 hours? We probably can if we really think about it. How much can we take back? Energy efficiency or production is a great way to do that. And then, seventh one is learn to locally forage. Remember I said if I could find a place where mushrooms just grew, that were edible mushrooms, I would go harvest them. One of the things I miss about Pennsylvania... I lived a significant, not, not the majority, but a significant portion of my life in Pennsylvania. And those eastern woods, man, I knew a place when I was a kid. <laughs> if you know what a ram's head mushroom is, a mataki, head of the woods. It's all names for the same mushroom. But they're huge. And they kind of sort of look like oyster mushrooms in a way. But a big one might be 10 pounds. And I knew this one place with loads of hickories and white oaks and we could go out in a couple hours and fill up like half the back of a pickup truck with them and they would be there every year and people paid you could walk into a bar there were little bars on every corner in the damn place i grew up you could walk into a bar and people would pay 10 bucks a pound cash money for them because they didn't know where to find them or they were too lazy to go find them So now I got a high, like, go look at the price of mataki mushroom. It's very expensive. 
If you go to Tim Love's restaurant, Lonesome Dove in downtown Fort Worth, you know, on a, a $60 plate of elk tenderloin and all, there'll be some mataki mushroom. I mean, it's, it's not an ounce before it's cooked on that $60 plate. There's some other things. It's pretty amazing, too. I've not put it down. I'm just pointing out, like, if you know how to forage that mushroom, that's an asset you have. Well, the thing about it is if you, if you find the right foraging grounds for, for that mushroom, um, you're going to want to be able to practice the entire concept of converting the food into storable because even two or three of those is a ton of mushroom. And there's multiple ways to preserve it, but you, you want to be able to do that. But how valuable is that resource? How valuable is it that I've built ponds in my backyard, I can go to a couple of little creeks that are a few miles away and have a day of recreation that costs me no money at all? I can pull some, some minnows out of my tank to use for bait or some worms out of one of my beds to use for bait, and I can go catch a couple dozen bluegills and various sunfish, bring them home, throw them in my pond, and when I want to eat one, I just toss a line in my little pond in my backyard and I have fresh fish. That's local foraging taken to another level. I'm combining foraging with farming. When I grew up, we would go out and we would have berry picking parties. Blueberries, blueberries and blackberries were the two biggest ones. Wild strawberries were never enough to really warrant this. But blueberries and blackberries, uh, we would get entire groups, like load up a bunch of Jeeps and stuff and go up in the mountains. And just everybody would pick for three or four hours. And then we would put everything together, pick out all the, you know, the, the, the red berries that got through the black and the unripe berries and kind of sort that all out and then divide it up. And then each family would take an equal portion. That was foraging on a large scale. Around here, there's a lot of parks that have pecan trees. There's a lot of like road easements that have pecan trees. And every once in a while I'm driving around, you know, in the fall and I'll see groups of people out just picking up pecans for free. Go price pecans. They're laying on the ground for free. They're, no matter where you are, there's something that you can forage. And every calorie you forage is a calorie you don't have to buy. Every ounce of nutrition you forage is an ounce of nutrition you don't have to buy. Plus you're getting exercise. Plus you're eating better. I mean, one of the, like the, the, the boutique things in like high-end niche restaurants now is locally foraged salads. People are paying $30 for a salad that's basically some wild edibles. Lamb's quarters and freaking dandelions. And purslane. It all grows in my chickweed. It all grows in my backyard. So grow your food. Learn to generate income from your home. Provide recreation for yourself. Use economy of scale with food storage. Convert food into storable forms. Be efficient with energy and learn maybe to produce some of it for yourself. And learn to forage locally. And that's a long way toward making the shift from home to homestead. In the end, it's more about how you think than exactly what you do. Like I said, if you start asking yourself the question, what can I grow? You'll find answers to that. I can't tell you what you can grow. I don't know where you live. I don't know how much time you want to put into it. But I, knew that, I know that anybody with a, a few dollars worth of mason jars, a couple cents worth of uh, fertilizer and some seeds can grow lettuce and herbs in a damn window. That might not be the best way to do it, but you can do that. And there's other ways that you can do a lot for yourself. But you have to start by, how do I? I don't know how you can generate income. I don't know what skill sets you have or are willing to acquire. I don't know how good you are at selling yourself. I don't know who your neighbors are, but you know that. 
So if you say, how can I generate income from my home? And you don't start Googling that and finding bullshit about stuffing envelopes or something, you'll come up with an answer. If you say, how can I provide more recreation so I don't want to leave my home and I want to be here? How can I provide more recreation so the kids don't want to leave? Then you'll find answers. It all starts with asking. And understand the same spirit that drove the original settlers is still alive and well in you today. Inside the heart of the accountant that sits behind a desk every day and, and runs numbers is still the heart of the hunter that went out and tracked the deer and killed it with a musket ball. We are the same people. We may not think the same way. We may have technology they couldn't even have conceived of. But we are no different genetically than our great-great-great-grandparents. We're the same people. We're the same people that got on a ship, crossed an ocean, because there was a promise that maybe you could have something of your own. Today, that's so much easier to acquire. And that's why we don't value it as much as we should. But that doesn't have to be the case. We can realize the gift that it is. And we can take that journey from home to homestead. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please consider supporting us. You can do that by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're probably going to buy something in the next week or day or month online. If you're going to do that, just go to tspaz.com first and you can help us out. Today's item of the day are the Felco F2 hand pruners. I'm bringing these around today because it is January, heading into February, and soon to be March. And, damn, I've got trees breaking bud already. I'm, I'm a little concerned about that, but I do have that going on. And it's time to prune. And this is how I'm going to tell you to think about hand pruners. If you have more than a tree or two to prune, you want the best pruners you can get. In the world of pruners, there is the Felco F2 or F6, depending on how big you want them to be for your hand size. And there is a distant second for everything else. Mostly, I would say Corona is kind of in second place by a big margin down the hill. This is the buy once, cry once model when it comes to long-time lasting value. If you talk to a nurseryman who prunes you know, 100 trees every day of his life, he uses Felcos 99% of the time. It, when I go, like if I go check out like a nursery to go tree shopping or whatever, and I look on a, a, a guy that, that, like I said, trees trims something every day of his life, and he's got a scabbard on his side of leather, you know what's in there? Felcos. Always. Always, 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 always. So if you don't have a good set of pruners, get these. If you don't want to make the investment, they're about 45 bucks. Um, I do give you some kind of second-tier stuff. And if you have, you know, half a dozen trees, that's it, you can save some money and go with the Coronas. Um, if you're not going to go at least with the Coronas, just buy the cheapest junk you can get because you're going to buy new stuff every year anyway. I mean, it's, it's amazing. This is something that should be easy to make well, and most people just don't do it. I also have a video included in the, the, the uh, write-up today. It shows you how to sharpen uh, these guys, and uh, really worth keeping them sharp. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Again, um, we are in uh, rush week because we are um, kind of memorializing and, and just paying some respect to the loss of Neil Peart. 
Neil Peart, of course, was the drummer for Rush. Just a really amazing musician and a really great dude. I mean, one of the things about him is, like, whenever you talk to somebody that's a drummer, they always have a story about trying to play something that Neil Peart played and not being able to do it. Like, just not being able, just can't do it. And they might be really good at what they do, but just some, some piece of his, they can't pull it off. Um, it's got some pretty good drum in today's song, but it's also got some really great lyrics. This is a song most Rush fans would know. I'd say all Rush fans would know, and many people that just kind of know of Rush would know. It's one of the more known songs that we have for you this week. It's called The Trees. So back in the 70s. Um, it was interesting. Neil Peart actually wrote this song. And he said a lot of people were looking for some kind of deep meaning in it or something. I thought it was some message for humanity or whatever. And he's like, it wasn't. I just saw a cartoon one day. It was a cartoon of trees, and they were acting like people. And I thought, like, what if trees acted like people? And then I, you know, I just kind of wrote this song, and then we put some music to it, and it was a hit. You know, that's it. That's all. Like, there's no message to it. Um, Far be it from me to say Neil Peart's wrong about a song he wrote, but I think Neil Peart's wrong about a song he wrote. I don't think he intended a message in this song, but I don't think the author of a message necessarily needs to intend a message for there to be a message. Just as I think many times when people intend a certain message, they'll find that a lot of people that listen to it and read it or whatever, you know, whatever form of message it is, an artist that draws a picture, whatever, that meant to convey a specific thing, There might be two or three or four or a hundred other things people take from it. Those messages are real whether they were intended or not. Well, the story of the, the trees in this song is there's a forest and the maples want more sunlight and the oaks ignore their pleas because the oaks can grow really tall. They shade the maples and they don't know why the maples can't be happy. But the maples eventually form a union and they demand equal rights. The oaks are just too greedy. We will make them give us light. Now there's no more oak oppression, for they pass the noble law, and the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. That is modern politics. Take those that are capable of more and, and cut them down for equality, and of course many of those that um, think they're gaining have to get cut as well. This song has an incredible message in it, whether Neil Peart meant to or not. Also, just an awesome song. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.